Welcome back, everybody, to the Cave of Solitude, your pop culture and comic book podcast coming to you from the megacity metropolis of Toronto. I am your host, Eric Anthony, and I'm very, very happy to have Back in the Cave. It's been quite a while. You may not remember, but uh, maybe 200 episodes ago, I was very happy to have today's guest, who is a master at the craft of comic book storytelling. He's told many, for lifelong comic book fans, we all got a favorite moment from today's guest, and it's none other than the one and only Ron Friends. Ron, thank you for coming back to the show. It's nice to have you here again. Eric, it's a pleasure to be with you. How are Thanks you, for asking. How are you keeping? I am, uh, oh, I'm keeping okay. This last year, for, for this, the, this freelancer in me, yeah, I had no idea that I was spending my entire adult life training for a global pandemic. Right. Because, you know, moving between, I, I'm a bachelor, I live alone with my cat, uh, I'm traveling between my apartment and my studio, my, my small studio space, and, uh, you know, if freelancers can ignore the rest of humanity for as long as they care to when they get, uh, when they get a good uh, run going, so uh, it wasn't all that difficult. I mean, I miss my family, and I, you know, I miss... Going out for a steak and a beer every once in a while. That's the first thing I'm going to do. I had my second shot. So middle of May, if everything goes right, you know, I'm thinking I might have to do a steak and a beer. But outside of that, uh, we're doing okay. Doing good. That sounds uh, that sounds fantastic. A steak and a beer will def- definitely goes a long way. You know, with all the like the skip the dishes stuff that we do, and some of the local uh, restaurants in our area that we try to support to keep them in business. N- there's nothing you can do to replace a fresh steak from a good steakhouse. That's the one thing that's you can't. You can't. That's, that that really is interesting. I mean, you know, hanging out with other human beings. I do miss that. <laughs> I, uh, you know, to to one degree or another. Um, I, I kept a fairly tight bubble, you know, my best friend, her father, things like that. I haven't seen my sister in over a year, you know, uh, my brother, you know, things like that. So I, I'm, uh, you know, looking forward to getting back to normal as soon as everybody gets their damn shots and, and, uh, we get our herd immunity rocking here, you right. know, I'm looking forward to it. How, how has it been in your city? You're in Pittsburgh, right? Yeah, that's right. How how has it been as far as like things the lockdown like in our city it still feels like a year ago it we're we're gonna be coming out of it but how is it for you guys there? Most of the restaurants and bars and stuff I see are like twenty five percent capacity. Um, we got it under control pretty quick. I haven't personally witnessed any anti mask bullshit going on uh, to any real degree. Uh, you know I've seen it on. YouTube and everything, but I haven't seen it going on uh, locally here. Um, so I, you know, we we did pretty good. We did have some lockdowns. I mean, I have friends that work in the uh, the bar and restaurant business, and and they they took it in the chin, you know, uh, early on in the lockdown and everything. You know, the the mayor and the governor are not popular, and mm. unfortunately, you know, unpopular opinions, uh, unpopular decisions had to be made, and. Uh, I think we came through it pretty good. Uh, I don't know if we were ever like one of the hotter spots. I mean, Pennsylvania's had some problems, but uh, you know, I, like I said, I, the the uh, vaccination stuff's been going pretty smoothly, and I was able to get in for my second shot already, and everything. So, I mean, I'm just hoping everybody kind of. 
I mean, once September starts, I think people are going to have to get vaccinated to get back to school and, uh, you know, colleges. And I, I think some businesses are going to be within their rights to expect people to get vaccinated to work for them. So, so hopefully that'll help open it up a little bit, too. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Are, do you miss I don't know how frequent you would attend, but do you miss uh, going to cons at all? Things like that? I do. I, I actually do, especially, you know, the ones that I've chosen to do. There's. Uh, a local Three Rivers one. Uh, actually, DeFalco and I were scheduled to do uh, uh, Heroes Con in 2020 oh. uh, together. And uh, they've decided to push it back till 2022, which I, I wholeheartedly uh, endorse. And uh, we, we are still invited. So we're just going to, it's going to be two years later, but we're still going to do the show together. And I'm looking forward to that. I always enjoy interacting with DeFalco and, uh, that's always a great way to do a show like that, you know, better, I'd much rather do it when we know everybody's safe and not have to worry about, hopefully by then we won't have to worry about wearing masks or anything, you know, it'll be great. Yeah. It's funny to, th- to think that uh, we want to go to a con again, so we don't, and we don't want to have to wear masks when we go there, but that's the one place where everybody finds a reason to wear a mask, right? <laughs> yeah. That's a great, it's great for cosplayers, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm happy that uh, you guys still plan to be going there because I mean, what's what's Tom DeFalco without Ron Friends? It's just not the same. Oh, don't say that! Come on. <laughs> well, I think everybody. I mean, some of his best work has been outside of uh, of our partnership, which you know it hurts me all the time. But what can I tell you? He did that whole second run of Spider Man without me and broke my heart. His I... run on Fate. Fantastic Four and his always work with Ron Lim, you know, all that kind of stuff. Well, it, it, there's no doubt that uh, Tom DeFalco has a plethora of, of good stories and, and things that your your name isn't attached to. But I think the stuff that people really love is when the when you guys are a tag team. It's just I think it's just what it is, to be well, honest. I think I, I honestly do feel that there is something I, I know he's my favorite collaborator and i know he brings out the best in me i hesitate to say the same uh the, the reverse for him I and mean, he'd have to say that himself but i i do i don't disagree i i think we have a lot of fun i think it makes it to the page and i i think that it is something that uh, is acknowledged i think our readership is because that comes through and uh, i think people you know feel like they're they're getting the best we've got and that they, they like the energy of what they're reading and everything. And, and I think that does come from, uh, from the collaboration. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. F- for sure. I mean, I dare say the, the one other person who I feel that you, I don't know how much work you guys have done together, but there, it is quite significant. You and Roger Stern are also a great team. Well, Roger's is a, is a terrific writer. I, uh, I will maintain that, the most important thing when you're working on a Roger Stern story, and of course, you know, I, mine were Hobgoblin Lives and The Kid Who Collects. And in both cases, my job was to stay the hell out of the way and not screw it up because they were, they were both tightly plotted, really well done stories. And, uh, you know, and again, Tom DeFalco is one of Roger's biggest fans. So, you know, uh, he would put Roger ahead of him on, uh, ahead of himself on any list uh, of, of writers, especially Spider-Man. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's always great fun when there's an opportunity for us to work together. Yeah. One of my, uh, I, I've, I think I told you this the last time we spoke, but I, I want to reiterate it. One of my favorite comic books I've ever read 
was the uh, the two Superman annuals you and Roger did together, because I had I had those issues before I could read, but I knew exactly. It's a perfect example to me of perfect comic book storytelling in what you did with uh, the page, the the pacing, the movement. I knew exactly who the bad guy was. I knew exactly how each of these characters felt about what was happening in the story, especially the one with Titano. There's so much emotion well, in that story. It's obvious that that was before you could read because Titano was actually John Byrne. But, oh, he wrote he wrote that one. That yeah, he, he did the plot for... Uh, You're correct. The it's the second Titano. one that you did uh, with The Roger. second one was where, we, where Roger proudly jammed all the Kirby concepts... Yeah. <laughs> into into the one <laughs> annual, yeah, where we did the DNA agents and the DNA aliens and the and the Harrys and and, and all that. Yeah, that was the second <laughs> annual. Yeah, but shame on me. I mean, they were, it was both working with Mike Carlin and is is you know he's a very hands on editor as well. So with that, with the one that you did with Burn, and I did know that you did it with Burn because I have multiple copies of it, but. Was that how much um, of that was it in the script of what you portrayed, and how much freedom did you have? Because it well, all the main all the main beats were in it. I mean, Byrne was doing everything at that time. He was right. doing Superman and action and all this kind of stuff, and and retooling the entire Superman legend. So when it came time to do that first annual, he turned in a one page synopsis for what he wanted the annual to be. Okay, and they sent it to me, and I went, Mike, I love creative freedom but this is a lot of creative freedom for my first time on superman and he said yeah i thought it was a little light too he says i'm gonna i'm gonna go talk to burn and then i'll I'll get back to you and i said okay and then he got back to me a couple days later and he said this is this is all john's got time for this is all john's interested Hmm. in contributing he said uh how about you and i have a phone conversation and we'll get it you know we'll get it uh the, the major beats knocked down and all this kind of stuff so Mike and I, Mike Carlin and I basically, you know, broke down the plot a little in a little more detail. But, but everything was on the page. Um, you know, the idea of Titano as a victim and all of that was all part of Burns' original pitch. And I thought it was genius. I mean, I, I you know, I wanted to make sure that that was the point of the story, you know. And it was the same with The Kid Who Collects Spider-Man as you... You know, visually, you want to be responsible for everybody visually knowing that, you know, that those emotional beats carry the weight that they need to carry. You don't want to have a whole bunch of splash pages and super action going on and then jam all the emotion into like the, you know, last nine pages on the last page or anything, the nice last nine panels. And I, so I didn't want to do that in either case. And uh, both of them still choke me up. So, uh, you know, uh, but, but, that all has to do with, you know, John Byrne came back and inscripted it with the Lois Lane first person narration, you know, from the mm. newspaper story. Mm. And it kills me every time. Every time I read it, it kills me. So, yeah, it's one of the one of the be- the high the highest points for me of that, because I love the John Byrne Superman run. But that annual is uh, it's always one that I want to have in my collection just because it's it's something you can show people and say, don't read any of the words. Just follow the illustration, and you'll know exactly what it is that you're meant to feel. Then, when you do read it, it adds all these. It adds a layer to it. But it's almost like, as as a child who can't read or, or understand speech bubbles yet, you can put the words in your head and know how to feel about it. So uh, I always appreciate that nice about that issue. That, 
that is pretty much the job description. So it's very kind of you to say. I appreciate that. Thank you. Do Do you feel that that is still um, captured as well as as when you guys were doing it? Because I feel that the pacing of storytelling from guys of your generation really it hit, it hit a high point of everything that had come before and everything that came after. Because just a little while after, it became very much pinup era and stuff looked good and you can make a poster of it, but it lacked in that feeling of story. Well, what I, what I honestly feel is, and, and I never thought it was going to go this way, of, of all the things I've been wrong about in this industry over 30-some years, this was the main one, is that I really thought when CGI caught up with the films, right? When, when CGI caught up with Jack Kirby's imagination and they could successfully do the superpowers and the, and the spectacle and everything as the Marvel movies have done so effectively over the last 10 years and, and the films before that, the X-Men films before that and, and the Fantastic Four films. This actually occurred to me when I was watching the Fantastic Four is when I, when I saw the Fantastic Four special effects on the Human Torch, and I went, geez, you know, my thinking, and again, I was completely wrong, my thinking was, Brian Hitch and Alex Ross are out of work. Now we can, now we can do this stuff live action. So I thought it was going to mean a huge return to less photorealism, that we were going to go back and embrace the way Jack Kirby drew the Human Torch. And, you know, and... and uh, and go back to instead of being trying to recreate movies with ultra realistic artwork, that we would just go back to doing what comics do best. You know, comics as a medium is a very specific, terrific individual medium. It's not movies and it's not novels, it's some cross of the two where the human brain still interacts and is a part of the magic. Because if you take five died in the wool longtime Spider Man fans and ask those five people who should play Peter Parker, chances are you'll get five different answers. Yeah. And there'll be everything from macho guys who are cut like steel to baby faced 15 year olds to, you know, everything in between. And yet we're a visual medium, but there's still that opening. For the, for the reader's imagination to fill in the blanks. So, you know, it's a, it, even in that way, it's, it's it, in its own way, it's more magical and um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, interactive, as far as your imagination, than a film. Because a film plays out in front of you. You can get involved in the characters and we all got choked up at the end of Endgame and all this kind of stuff, but... It's telling you what it's showing you what's happening, right? You're not as engaged. Your your imagination isn't as locked in and being used as much as when you're looking at a at a double page splash in a comic book, you know, that kind of thing. So I thought we were gonna go back to more fantastic comic book storytelling. Okay. But instead, we still have some of the most some of the most accomplished people in comics right now are fantastic illustrators, but the books still look like still frames from a movie. You know, they're still doing uh, um, 
wide screen panel arrangements and the you know they're doing you know sometimes an entire a half of a whole issue or an entire issue will be staked up for one one conversation between two characters instead of you know uh, uh, any thought of giving the reader their real money's worth for the you know six or seven bucks that they're paying for this comic book now, which were all considerations when, when I first got in in the 80s because we were still a mass market entertainment form. Uh, a lot of what's being done in the, in the movies now is closer in content and in treatment as what we were doing in the, uh, you know, in the, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s and I mean, yes, they're using things, you know, the, you know, like the Winter Soldier and, and, and concepts from later. But, you know, again, they, they're they're keeping it tighter. They're telling stories that are also uh, enjoyable for civilians and and kid friendly, you know, and things like that, for the most part. And and dealing with the mass market impact of these characters, whereas the comics have kind of moved into an area where. If you're not a longtime fan, you're going to have a real hard time jumping on board this dragon. I mean, riding the dragon now with comics is very difficult. I know how to read comics, and I've been out of it for so long that when I go into a comic shop, I don't know where to start. I wouldn't know where to start. You know, occasionally I'll hear about a book changing art teams and writing teams, and I say, oh, that sounds, those guys, that, that sounds good. I'm going to try to check that out. And I'll go to my local comic shop. And I'll be, let's say it's the Avengers, and I'm looking at all the Avengers, and there's like 16 miniseries from the last three years. And I actually one time asked one of the guys that worked at the shop, Where, where's the core Avengers book? Hmm. And it's been relaunched with number one so many times, nobody could tell me. Nobody could tell me what was the core Avengers title because it had been relaunched so many times and there were like three or four miniseries going at that point. And so I walked out without a, without a copy of the Avengers because whatever it was, was sold out anyway, had sold through anyway. And I didn't have a chance to get a copy of it. So I walked out without it, you know? Um, so that's craziness that, you know, that, that makes it hard for your audience to, it makes it hard to, to keep building that audience. You know, I mean, I don't know how many new people have come into it. Obviously, you know, there's still young people coming into it. And, and I, I don't fault the industry at all for, uh, for their inclusiveness and, and, and the variety that they're now offering. I think that's, that's crucial to their survival and, and, and their, uh, you know, the, the, the broadness of who they're hiring to tell these stories and the fact that they're telling stories from different experiences, I think it's absolutely necessary. I think anybody that has a problem with that is a closed-minded idiot because comics have always been on that cutting. The comics have always reflected what's going on in society. You know, anybody that complains about political correctness or, you know, what comics are becoming because what the world is becoming, you know... They're the same people that make fun of the fact that Reed Richards was a stiff when it came to how he treated Sue back in the 60s because that's how guys treated their wives back in the 60s, you know, that kind of thing. We've always reflected the times of the, the work being produced. No matter how timeless we try to keep it, Yeah, we're always going to end up doing that. You know, when people make fun of Eric Masterson's mullet, 
You know, yeah. it's like, well, you know, people wore mullets. Let's get past it, okay? Yes, women used to wear big shoulder pads. Guys yeah. used to wear baggier pants. Can we move on, please? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I, I honestly feel that a lot of these new characters and certainly the new creatives that they're hiring and, and broadening the scope and the diversity of, of the creatives, it's all a good thing. It's all wonderful. And it's the only thing that's keeping this industry alive right now, guys. Come on. If, 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 if people in their, four, if white guys in their 40s and 50s just keep telling stories for readers in their 30s and 40s, we're all going to die out sooner or later. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree with you. I, I just hope that it, it's um, done in an, in an organic way, which a lot of times it is. And those times where it feels somewhat forced, I think, is where maybe people have that reaction to it, where... Like J.M. DeMatteis, for instance, had his Captain America run where he had back in the 80s, a care, uh, Cap's best friend was a gay man. Right. But but it was he was a character in the story, whereas if I think they advertise it to say this new character is this, you should buy it. It's I'd rather you tell me a great story like Kamala Khan, who's a wonderful character that I, I feel I relate to Kamala Khan probably more than any character in the Marvel Universe, as strange as that sounds, because this, her story is so, it, it's so relatable, but she's so different from me at the same time. Right. Right. So I think, I think as long as they keep it organic and natural and not doing it to, um, try, to try to reach a quota, because you can kind of smell that when that happens. But you're right. I think it yeah, is. But crucial. I also think people are being overly sensitive to that because there is a school of thought now that you know keep keep politics out of my comics, and politics have always been a part of comics. I mean, yes. you know, Captain America punched Hitler in the face before the before America was in the war. Right. You know, that was Jack Kirby and Joe Simon making a political statement that a lot of people did not agree with at the time. That's right. You know, uh, so. And Stan has always been political in that way. You know, if if, if you're if you're, if you're going to get overly sensitive to the idea, and I don't mean you, I mean anybody. Yeah, no, it's, it's something uh, to talk about. If they're going to get overly sensitive to the idea that all men are brothers <laughs> and, and that we need to be inclusive and diversity is our strength, not a weakness, you know, if, if you know, if you get really incensed by that idea... Uh, do you ever look in the mirror and go, "Hey, maybe I'm the bad guy"? <laughs> you know, maybe I'm maybe I'm relating a little bit more to the Red Skull than I should be, and not enough to uh, you know to, to Captain America or Peter Parker or whatever. You know, because you know that yeah, there's. I mean, there certainly in the comics, and, and it's something that you know Frank Miller brought to the fore, and a lot of people brought to the fore, which is interesting to me, because a lot of people see. Uh, superheroes as being indicative of a, a more totalitarian lean or a right a right leaning thing where might makes right and all this kind of stuff. I grew up reading comics, and my impression of comics was very leftist. I mean, my impression of comics is if you can't help another person, if you if it was if it is within your power or superpower to help people then you should help people. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, 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 that uh, 
that great power, be that the government or just being somebody in a better position, should help those beneath them, you know, should should help the other people up. That's very lefty, yeah. <laughs> you know. So I've never I never really agreed with the, uh, you know, the whole brutal vigilante Batman gets his rocks off beating the hell out of people and everything. I was always more into superheroes rescue people. That's what they do. I mean, I almost, well, I, I did get choked up one time because they had, you know, you would interview kids occasionally dressed up as their favorite superhero. And, you know, you, you know, you unfortunately see these kids where they're dressed up as Wolverine and they say, why do you like Wolverine? Because he slices people, you know, and he's, he, but then there was this little girl dressed as Wonder Woman. And they said, why do you like Wonder Woman? And she just, very sincerely and passionately said, because she saves people. And that's, that's what this comics world has always been to me. That's, that, that went right to my heart because that's why I've always enjoyed comics. That's why I wanted to get into comics. That's why I enjoy telling these stories because, you know, to me, it's not about the, the action or the, you know, mano y mano uh, uh, violence of it if you want to use violence instead of action I can't deny that people go way too far in that direction um, I mean my god I mean some of the stuff now with the boys and uh, and invincible and all this kind of stuff I none of that appeals to me because that's not why I got into superheroes to begin with you know that kind of thing I mean that kind of action and that kind of conflict is a part of the good versus evil paradigm and all this kind of jazz, you know, uh, boiled down into a physical uh, uh, conflict. But that's not why I'm into these characters. That's not why I think anybody should be into these characters. You know, and I certainly don't see them as being indicative of a, of a, uh, a police state or a totalitarian state or something like that. You know, I, I see them in very much... Uh, more leaning Christian type values of, you know, if you can help another human being, then help another human being. And and it's within all of our power to do that. And, you know, I don't want to, I'm not going to get on my soapbox here, but, you know, I, if, if you think the world sucks and you think nobody is helping anybody, then go out and help somebody. Be, be, you know, be the change you're looking for. Be, be that for somebody else. If you're, if, even if nobody's been there for you, you know, yeah. Be somebody's hero. Yeah, uh, we can all do it. It's all possible. Yeah, no, I, and I think I think that's why. Uh, I mean, the arts in themselves is a way for us to. Uh, we we look for we look to the arts for truth, not so much for the facts of the matter. We look to the arts for the truths, for some sort of moral morality compass that isn't um, definite or absolute. Because every character's story and, and their power set and, and what they're able to do and what maybe they shouldn't do, even though they can, that's not the way you use your power. This is the way. And that's what I've always loved about these characters because you yeah. can have Superman, um, the, the way it's depicted in the Injustice story where he kind of loses it once, he, once Lois dies, which I think is a very interesting place to take it. But uh, it's always been the thing of this is why Superman is good. Because he doesn't do what he can do. Sure. Right? Sure. Yeah, well, you, have you seen Falcon and the Winter Soldier? Yes. Yeah. 
there was so much I loved about the writing in that. Um, that I, it, I could have separate conversations about all kinds of different aspects of what I loved about that storytelling and that writing. But pertinent to what we're talking about is, is it was about two characters who were lucky enough to be friends with Steve Rogers. Steve Rogers was a, you know, a, a, an incredible individual who said what he meant and was there for you. Yeah. If he could be there for you, he would be there for you. You could believe in Steve and he would never let you down. Okay. Steve is gone now. So uh, the six episodes of Falcon and the Winter Soldier, one way to look at them is Bucky and Sam trying to decide what life is going to be without Steve. And what they ultimately decide to do is be Steve for each other. Mm. Bucky finds, you know, he, he's dealing with his own stuff, but he also finds purpose in being there for Sam. And Sam finds purpose being there for Bucky. And, you know, they both have their own separate story arcs and all this kind of stuff. But when you when you look at it overall, it is that, you know, when you lose that kind of a of, of a of a rock in your life, when you use you lose that sense of balance that someone or something gives you, you have to find it again. You have to decide where you're going to find it again. And, you know, I think these characters can be wonderful symbols of that and, and wonderful examples of that in, in, uh, in finding purpose in helping your fellow man and, and serving your fellow man. I mean, ultimately, I think that's what most of the best of these characters is all about. Um, I mean, Thor, for me, was always very basic in that he was so much more and better than the rest of us, and yet he found purpose in helping us grow and get better and be different, you know, be better than we wanted to be. And, and, and that's what his, he chose as his purpose. Right. With the rest of the universe out there beckoning to him, his connection to Earth was something that he valued and cared very deeply about. Yeah. I was uh, just before we got on to press record. I was chatting with our mutual friend Adam Chapman from uh, Comic Shenanigans. He says hi, by the way. Um, well, be sure to give him a hug for me the next time you talk to him. I will. Good man. Um, but I was saying to him that I enjoyed uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, but I found myself a little bit disappointed, maybe because of my expectations, because the the Cap Captain America trilogy in the in the MCU is my absolute favorite. Winter Soldier is my my favorite comic book movie, probably of all time. Uh, but what you, the way you've described it now and and what you took from it uh, gives me a new appreciation of next time I watch it, some of the things that I'll pay attention to. Because I think the sometimes the first time you go into something, you become um, involved with who's the bad guy, who's this, what am I fighting, what's the what are the right. Easter eggs or. You you almost we get and all, the, all the and all the comic book fans especially are pulling the thread about how close it relates to what was in the comic books and what they loved about the original comics and you know I I really feel sorry for people who are quick to say it's not like the comics it's shit because they're cheating themselves of yeah. some really 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 good storytelling but I'm sorry I interrupted you no Go no ahead. you're 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 right and it's always something that I I make sure now that. I never, like, I don't watch 
what they adapt and say, oh, they didn't do beat for beat. Because whenever it goes beat for beat to the comic, it's never quite that good. If they're trying right. to com- unless well, that, you know, who wants to know how it's going to end? Yeah, and right. I think that kind of uh, is what made people watch something like The Watchmen, which visually uh, and beat for beat, you you felt like I remember that panel. That's a panel, but you knew where it was kind of going, so it didn't it didn't leave you with any sort of suspense at the end of it all. Whereas when you watch Winter Soldier, yeah, you know Bucky is going to be Winter Soldier, but all of those moments are much more personal and they're a little bit different than what you expected. But sure. uh, and they did their, they did their own job of building it from the ground up uh, and and it was a little more self-contained and you know in the films and I mean it made perfect sense to me that they did Winter Soldier as early as they did coming right off of Bucky's relationship with Steve from the first movie. Right. Instead of instead of waiting 40 years to do it, you know, <laughs> to do it in the comics. So I get it, you know. I mean, but yeah, there's a, a clarity and a, and a, you know, a a, a, a neatness, uh, a, a contained feeling to the Marvel universe, the ten years of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that even people who have experienced all the source material, it's so spread out and so diverse. And, you know, there's years and years and years between certain story arcs and all this kind of stuff that I actually appreciate the tightness of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the things that they've chosen to include and 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 gloss over and things. And they can always go back and do other stuff. I mean, I, I still would love to see them do a Thor movie where it's, you know, like do one of the Mangog story arcs or something where, you know, but uh, until that time... I, you know, I appreciate what they're doing, you know? Yeah, and, and I think we, when we're watching sometimes things for the first time, like the, the fans or the, the guys like myself, we theorize, where do you think they're going? Do you think they're going to, you know, this is the way they introduce the Thunderbolts? Or do you think this is the way that they're going to do, that we're looking for all these little seeds that they're planting instead of sometimes just watching the story for what it is. And, and sometimes you rob yourself of that, uh, yeah, that oh, I see that it. a lot. I, I see that a lot. I can, I you know, I'm as plugged into the comics for the most part as anybody, and you know, and yet I can sit back and just enjoy what they're doing. I, I mean, when I when that Marvel logo comes up, I I have a lot of trust in them now. I, I have no problem, uh, you know, sitting back into my chair and just letting them entertain me. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's the best part of the week. I'm really looking forward to. Uh, what they do with Loki because it just opens right. it looks like it so much so many doors can be open with that um I've been meaning to ask you this question and I'm sure you've been asked quite a few times in the last few years but Endgame the best moment that when Steve picks up that hammer I swear I swear to you when that happened I said the Falco and friends yes I was so happy you okay. guys had a moment that was saved for the ultimate fight like what, what what were you thinking when you saw that did you know it was going to happen or were you as surprised no. as i was no in fact I, it took me a while to go see the movie and people were going you haven't seen it yet you really need to see it <laughs> so my brain was already leaning that direction given you know the scene they did in in ultron mm. but you know he had done it a, a couple of times since we did it originally i mean you know Brett Breeding was the, the guy that actually suggested it the first time, which we, who was responsible for the fact that we did it during our run. But 
you know, he, he the the actual scene in the movie probably bore more resemblance to later times when he had done it uh, than really to ours, you know, that kind of thing. But no, the the whole concept of of Steve being worthy, I have no problem with at all. I mean, I think that's especially in the way they were the way they cast those films and the way they told those stories and you know all of that. I I you know I've been on board for for all of it and uh, that was a terrific moment but i'm like everybody else the real moment was when he finally said avengers assemble yeah yeah it was it it i always was anticipating him to like in ultra age of ultron at the end i thought you would hear him say it but the fact that they saved it for that moment it brought a tear it did i got emotional yeah. It's, oh yeah! It's oh, it was it was a huge release. It was it was <laughs> literally the climax of that film. Yeah, it was incredible. Yeah. incredible. Watching those videos of the audience reactions and everything are just incredible. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Do you have a favorite of the MCU? Uh, probably it would probably be very hard for me to uh, to pick one. Um, the first Thor I thought was was very 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 well done. Captain America: The First Avenger, I thought, was just exquisite, and it's and hitting all the all the right notes. Um, no, I, it would be hard for me to choose because I mean, I the, I thought the First Avengers is almost a perfect movie, um, and I enjoyed Age of Ultron incredibly. Uh, I really did. I I, I thought I, I don't think that was a disappointment in any way, shape, or form. Although a lot of people did. Um, Civil War was really strong, you know. Uh, I like Tom Holland as Peter Parker, so I, I'm not well, I'm not in the camp that resents the way they've no. brought him in through uh, Tony Stark and Iron Man Junior. and whatever the criticisms are. I, I've been enjoying that that relationship quite a bit. So uh, it would be hard for me to pick a you know a top one, but you know certainly Endgame. Hmm. I you know I. I, I'm always amazed when I read these reviews where people are going, you know, Marvel couldn't stick the landing and Endgame was a huge disappointment. And I'm like, what movie were you watching? <laughs> I mean, I thought they did a heck of a job. I, I think the Russo brothers as storytellers are, I mean, really, really good directors because they had a hell of a construct there to try to give some closure to and, and I think they did as good a job as anybody could have done and I, kept everybody engaged gave everybody screen time I, that's almost impossible to pull off and these guys did it more than once you know yeah no you're I think you you're a hundred percent right about that because it was an impossible task that they made or they made it happen like when I left the theater for infinity war uh, my my jaw dropped. We all kind of comic book fans know the the Thanos snap thing, but seeing it happen and leaving the theater that way, knowing that like I need to come back here next year, it can't happen fast enough for me to finish the yeah. story. And, and, and what's interesting is I've watched Endgame several times. I haven't gone back to watch Infinity War again. I've been watching it parts of it when it runs on TV, but that one ended in such a cliffhanger and a downer and with such a uh, overall somber tone mm-hmm. that that's not one I enjoy revisiting, you know? Right. Uh, even though those fights up front in the, in early in that movie are like right out of the comic page, it's just incredible what they're able to recreate now with CGI. Uh, but, uh, 
but yeah, that's one that I, I really need to go back and watch it from front to back now that I know how it ends and that everybody's okay. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, it was, that was a tough watch because you did, you walked out of, you walked out devastated. I mean, you, you, and, uh, and eager to see how they were going to get out of this one, you know? I was almost like because I was I wasn't alive when uh, Empire Strikes Back was in theaters, but I felt like this is what it would have been like for kids then or people then going to watch Empire Strikes Back, having that cliffhanger, yeah. feeling dejected and and like you lost. Yeah. And I go, now what? How does the story end? Where do they go from here? Uh, it's, it was very much like that. You're absolutely right. I was alive back then, and it was it was very much like that. It, 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 they managed to to create that kind of a, of a community that was really tied into what was going on. So you brought up um, before about how hard it would be today for people to jump into comics the way that, you know, kind of the, the business model is structured with renumbering. And you famously jumped onto books, like for The Amazing Spider-Man, it was in the 250s. And with Thor, it was, I think, in the 380s. Would you have preferred at that time, let's say if, if Marvel said to you, you and Tom are, are getting on these books and we're starting it with number one? No. No. I, w- I would have completely disagreed with that. Unless it was, uh, you know, like I was there for the launch of like Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man. I mean, if they would have offered us, we're going to do a new book called Your Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man. Right. And, you know, and give you guys a new number one of a new title that's one thing but otherwise no i'm i'm a big fan of the legacy numbering and you know i mean let me give you an example when i was 11 years old in 1971 dc retooled superman and they didn't do it by retelling his origin and throwing everything else out they did it by hiring a new editor and a new writer denny o'neill and julie schwartz and they came in and they did kryptonite nevermore right and there was this, you know, uh, radioactive uh, 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 chain reaction that happened around the world and all kryptonite was turned to lead. Hmm. And they came up with a whole new menace for Superman and they, they used that to kind of chop his powers down a little bit. But it was all done in continuity. Clark Kent started working for GBS as an anchorman. You know, they, they retooled the supporting cast. and But all of it was done in continuity. And I can't tell you as an 11 or 12 year old kid, how exciting that was to be a part of that. You know, at the time it didn't really work. It it didn't super energize the sales or uh, become, you know, the model for doing that or anything, but doing anything within the continuity, I think is more interesting than mystically rewriting the planet, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would have been much more, I would have found it much more compelling as a story if Pete and Mary Jane just divorced right. and bringing Mephisto into it and all that kind of stuff. Because people who are, who love each other still get divorced. I mean, especially when one of them is putting on spandex and risking his life, you know, because he feels compelled to do that, you know? I mean, it was, you know, when I was on the Superman books and they, they found themselves in, in the bizarre position of delaying the marriage of mm. Superman and Lois because they wanted to line it up with the TV show and all right. this ridiculousness was thrown at them. So they needed to press pause on the engagement. And 
I thought it was the easiest thing in the world. And then there was a lot of disagreement about how to go about it and all this kind of stuff. And like some of the opinions were amazing in their, in their implied misogyny, because like one of the suggestions, one of the ways that people were, well, it's Lois is nuts. You know, Lois is just being a woman and she's a little crazy and she's, you know, because he's the perfect man. So why wouldn't she want to marry him? So the only reason for her to, to do it is because like she was, she resents he's Superman or, or whatever, and uh, resents the fact that he's the perfect man. And it's like, are you mental? That No, <laughs> no, she is, she is, look, she is staring down the barrel of marrying the ultimate cop surgeon who has a larger responsibility to the entire planet. And no matter how much she understands that or admires it or, you know, whatever, I mean, that's, that's, are you sure you can do that? I mean, you wouldn't be asking yourself, gee, I don't know if this is a, I don't know if I can do this. I, you know, that might be more than I can bite off, you know, it might be more than I can chew. Yeah. And I, I, I would have discussions with the Superman editors about, you know, about it because, you know, you needed, cause we needed to choose something that made Lois look, cause if you just said, okay, she wasn't sure she went through a, a period of doubt and then she decided, no, he is, he's the best guy for me. So I am going to marry him. Right. How is that compelling? Right. You need to choose a reason why she's, doubting herself that makes her more identifiable and more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Heroic when she overcomes that. So if it's a fear of not being up to the task or, or not being sure that she can, you know, keep this promise that she's about to make to Clark, you know, if it's, if it's a fear based thing that she overcomes her fear and then it's not just that she changed her mind again, but she overcame this uncertainty. She overcame this fear. Her love for Clark was stronger than her uncertainty and stronger than her fear. And, you know, but but how, you know, yeah, he's Superman. Yeah, he he's handsome and upstanding and wonderful. But I don't, you know, I don't know if I'd want to sign on for Wonder Woman. I mean, whether she looked like Linda Carter or Gal Gadot, I mean, being Wonder Woman's boyfriend would be a hell of, you know, your that's life a is lot. In, your life is in danger constantly, right? Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, <laughs> that, and, that's a lot. And I think, too, for, for everything that you said to build on that with a character like Lois and Superman, um, Superman's biggest weakness, I think, is Lois because he might make the wrong choice to save her Instead of doing, you know, the greater I think that's, I, as the character, I think it's one of Lois's biggest fears. Yeah, and and, and, I, think, and I mean, have you have you seen the uh, the Superman and Lois show they're doing on CW? I've seen the the first episode, and I was uh, quite impressed with with what they did. Watch the rest of them because they deal with they they bring up all of those issues. They bring up the fact that she's upset that he can't be there for something even though she completely understands why she can't be there for something. And she's angry at herself for being upset that he couldn't be there. Even you know, I mean, all of that is on display. Really. I think it's being really well written and very well acted 
Yeah. And uh, I'm surprised how much I'm enjoying it, to tell you the God's honest truth. Yeah. But uh, it, it is. It's, it's, they're, they're really dealing with those questions in, in a very organic, relatable way. And uh, that, that's, you know, th- those are the questions for Superman. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, there's a part of this character that he has remained sane. The stories are always worth telling over and over and over again. But, but you know, I believe that Clark Kent has remained sane by understanding over the years that he can't save everyone. That, you know, he's going to go, you know, if he tries, he's going to go nuts. I mean, you know, uh, we actually, when I was on the Superman books, the, the arc that was done, it was like Superman King of the World or something where he mm. took, over, took over the United States with robots and all this kind of stuff. The germ of that idea came up at the Superman Summit, which, I, frankly, I mean, they, nothing against the people that finally carried out the idea, and it, it, it sold fine, and everybody was happy with it, and I wasn't even on the books by the time they executed the idea, but I was at the Superman Summit, and the, the germ of that idea was in the same vein of, of uh, John Byrne kind of telling the origin of his code against killing, Mm-hmm. We wanted to to kind of show him learning the lesson that he can't save everyone, okay? And the way we were going to do that in the initial the initial concept was that he stopped sleeping. Hmm. He was trying to be there for everybody hmm. around the globe, and he knew physically he didn't need sleep. Hmm. But as they pointed out in some really good stories in the '60s and '70s. Is psychologically he needs sleep, mm. and you know he needs that release. So we had kind of had him to the point where he wasn't sleeping, and he was kind of sleepwalking and disarming nuclear powers <laughs> at night and not remembering. And things get out of control, and he's put in the impossible position of either admitting to the world that he was out of control or saying, "Wait a minute." this is what I'm here for, you know, is to save them, even if it's from themselves, you know, and have him make the mistake because he hasn't been sleeping and because he's psychologically vulnerable, make the mistake of saving us from ourselves and having to learn the lesson that he can't, you know, mm-hmm. the one thing he can't do is save us from our, from ourselves, from our own stupidity and our own folly. He can't. And so at some point, Clark Kent has, has to make peace with that. I'm sure over and over and over again, I'm sure he spends a lot of time crying in the shower hmm. because he sees us being complete idiots. But how do you save somebody from themselves? You know, how, how do you force somebody to be better before they're ready to be better, you know, before they've learned to be better? Uh, and, and I think that's something that, that he deals with on an ongoing basis. You know, I think to, a, to an extent he, he tends to be kind of codependent with the entire human race because he, I, I've, I've explained it this way, I think he has a huge survivor's guilt. He has to make a purpose. He had to find a purpose for his surviving the death of Krypton. And that's a huge thing for, for a kid growing up 
that, you know, I mean, you hear the stories all the time of people that survive a plane crash, you know, everybody's killed, but like one or two people and they end up running a soup kitchen or becoming, uh, you know, more community active or something because they, they need to find a purpose in their survival. And I believe that's an aspect of Clark Kent's story is that, you know, to grow up and find out that you're the sole survivor of a planet that ha- you have to give that a reason. It's up to him to find a reason f- that his brain can wrap around f- as to why he survived. Right. And not only did he survive, he survived with this incredible toolbox of, of abilities mm-hmm. by which he can help people, you know. So it all seems like a pretty, a pretty you know, direct construct of how somebody might psychologically survive being the sole survivor of a planet, you know, and at the same time being raised by decent people in, in the Midwest of the United States. And, you know, cause ultimately in my opinion, he's Clark Kent from Smallville, Kansas. Yeah. That's how he grew up. That's what he knows. That's, who he is. Yeah. What he is, is something much larger and bizarre and crazy that I think sometimes he needs to not think about so much because that's what would make him nuts. You know, yeah. that kind of thing. I always appreciated that about when they, when they retooled Superman, when Byrne got on the book was that Clark Kent was who he was and Superman was something he could do. I always right. kind of preferred, right. preferred that angle because it makes now <laughs> a character that if he could just you know, blow out a star or his powers are anything that they want to come up with. He's got the power to do it. It does become uh, uninteresting. But when you make, when you give a character, even like a Thor, I look at Superman and Thor as as two characters who are so powerful and so strong that if it's just a, a, a knock them down, drag them out comic book every month, it might look good or be entertaining. But what really makes those books uh, sing is when you bring in who surrounds them, the Jimmy Olsons and the Lois Lanes and the Cat Grants, or in Thor's case, you know, you, you guys added Eric Masterson and you gave him even a, a, a friend like Hercules and all these other people around Thor that made yeah. his regular everyday life now interesting that when he does go in the cosmos, there's this other stuff that still matters to us as the reader. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you completely. Well, any, any supporting cast... The only purpose of a supporting cast is to say something about the lead character. I mean, right. every every supporting cast member should be there to help illustrate some aspect of uh, of the character, uh, of the lead character. And uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, what what we wanted to show by bringing Eric Masterson in, even before we bonded them, is that you know Thor loves mortals. He he. Mm-hmm. He finds us in some ways braver and more worthy of respect than some Asgardians because we're on the clock, mm. because we know that we only have a limited time in this sphere, and yet we build things, we create things, we, you know, we strive against the dying of the light. That to him is amazing. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he grew up with, you know, people warring and and partying and and lusting and living and you know as guardians 
I, I believe they're a martial society. I believe that their poetry is about war. Their, you know, <laughs> their mm-hmm. songs are about war because I think what, and I give a lot of thought to this kind of stuff. Tom DeFalco and I always had conversations about this kind of stuff. Odin wisely decided that to keep the Asgardians from becoming a negative in the cosmos, he created a society where they were the kind of the policemen of the nine worlds, you know, in much the same way that Superman needed to find his purpose in helping other people. Odin knew that he had to find something like that. He had to find some guiding purpose for the Asgardian people, Hmm. or they might just become, like the Olympians were in the actual myths, you know, they would just be tipping over apple carts all over the nine worlds and just, you know, creatures of pleasure and, and all this kind of stuff. And I believe that's why Odin created a martial society that became peacekeepers and became people that were there to help the little guy and to help other societies thrive and to help other societies survive. Mm-hmm. And, that when when Thor was arrogant and Odin created Don Blake to teach him humility, he was just reinforcing what Thor had already been taught, which is you help the little guy. Mm. And he became the little guy. He became mm. that much more tied in to the human experience, the you know the earthly mortal experience, and uh, realized that we we we're pretty cool. I mean, you know, as, as an animal, mm. we're. We're pretty nifty, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and more than any other Asgardian, you know, he's, we, we did scenes where other Asgardians asked him, what's this thing with earth people? What's this thing you have with earth people? And he said, every moment is precious to them. You yeah. know, they, 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 yet they still create and, and I remember live that. and thrive and, uh, you know, they they grasp every moment. They, they, he compared us at one point to to flowers. You know that that we just it's it's our it's our nature to grow towards the sun. You know to, to to strive towards the sun. And he has chosen as his personal mission to help us in that. You know to to protect us when we need protected from things larger than ourselves and things. And and you know again finding that core vibe for a character is hugely important uh when you're gonna well i mean with uh, tom and i always talk to character uh you know we got to know pete very very well we would always just talk about pete and his and his life and his supporting cast and somehow story ideas and plots would come from those conversations the same with thor and uh you know but again we needed we brought in eric because we wanted one specific human and we wanted to show the friendship that Eric could have with one specific, that Thor could have with one specific human who was, who wanted to be there for Thor, you know, and, 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 and try to get Eric. And I, and I think to a large degree we succeeded is try to make Eric a character that the fans liked as much as, as much as Thor before we ever bonded them. Hmm. You know, they knew Eric, they liked Eric. Then we bonded them and then we told those stories and then 
Thor was exiled and Eric became Thor for a while, was in the driver's seat. And we told those stories and had fun with that. But we never, we never intended on Thunderstrike. Thunderstrike was the sales department came to us and said, we understand you're going to be wrapping up the, the Eric Masterson storyline. And, and Tom said, yeah. And they said, how are you planning on doing that? And he goes, well, you know, the original plan was Eric was not going to make it out. I mean, he was, uh, Thor was going to go to Asgard and become king, to become king, Mary Sif and become king. And Eric was going to become Thor on Earth. Mm. Loki was going to escape and uh, kill, kill Eric. And it was going to be Eric's death at the hands of Loki that was going to make Thor realize I can't do this. I, I can't draw a target on somebody else and ask them to do my job. Right. You know, what I've provided is my job. So he, you know, picks yet another person to stand in as liege. Or maybe we would have had a marry Sif and have Sif run things, you know, whatever. We never got around to making those decisions. But, uh, you know, Eric was not going to make it out. And uh, but, but the sales department said, but he's really popular. Hmm. And we're thinking more along the lines of, you know, creating his own book. And then it was, and Tom said, really, what are you thinking that would be? And they said, well, that's up to you, you know, that kind of thing. So we, we played with the idea of having Thor be stories of Thor as king on Asgard and journey, a new journey into mystery being Eric as Thor on planet earth. Mm. You know, we played with that idea. We played with a bunch of different things and ultimately decided on Thunderstrike. But, um, you know, it, that was very organic in the in the most ridiculous way because you know that's not something Tom and I were planning on. But you know, it uh, you if you are given a gift of fans enjoying the the character or the, or what you're doing, then you gotta you know, why not lean into that? You know, I mean, we we're about to go. No, no, we don't want to launch a new book. We we're gonna kill Eric. You know, because <laughs> who why would wants you? to kill Eric? By the by, the time we actually did it, nobody wanted to do it. You know. <laughs> well, I was going to ask about about uh, you and Tom both, like I said before, jumping onto a popular book that had a seminal run, and then you guys make your own seminal run. What is what when you do something like that? And I know that uh, history tells us that you guys had intended to hopefully go on to Daredevil, and you were given Thor, and and you you know made it work clearly. But what do you do with something like Spider-Man or with Thor to give it a fresh coat of paint, if you will, while not upsetting the apple cart and, and making it sort of distinctive for what you guys, the, you know, the, the, the Falco and Friends run? Well, we never really worried about it being distinctive. We, we would go back, you know, uh, you read the stuff that came before, all of it, uh, to the best of your ability, and you... And then you have a lot of conversations about what you've learned about, mm. you know, what you think is the point of this, the original, the original point of the concept, you know, the original, the, the original idea that made Thor unique from other guys who wore blue and a red cape, you know, that kind of thing. And, and with Spider-Man, you know, what made, what made Spider-Man worth doing because you know there's so many superheroes out there it behooves you to go back to the root every once in a while and and see what made this character worth publishing 
initially, you know, and and what made him unique from all other characters. And sometimes you have to go back to the very beginning to find that. Other times, not so much, you know. But when it came to Thor especially, we had no connection to the original myths the way Walt did. You know, no, nobody was connected to the original Norse myths the way Walt is and the way Walt was. And, and would, we would have been, we would have been trying to pretend to be Walt. We would have been trying to pretend to filter, you know, the mythology the way Walt did. And it wouldn't have been uh, as sincere because our attachment to Thor was through the, you know, the Lee Kirby stuff. And for me, the Lee Buscema stuff. And I mean, I grew up on the, the, the Jerry Conway run with John Buscema. And, you know, I mean, I had a, a slightly different, uh, a little more of a complete view of Thor than DeFalco even did. Um, and DeFalco wasn't sure he could do the cosmic. Hmm. Um, you know, he wasn't sure that that was something he was qualified for or all that interested in writing. So, which is why from the get-go, we introduced the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the new, uh, Pantheon with the Celtic Pantheon mm-hmm. and then went right in, went right into the, uh, Celestials. Yeah. Because he figured, well, if I'm going to see if I can write cosmic, let's jump in on the deep end and yeah. see how this goes. Completely. <laughs> and he came through like gangbusters. I mean, the guy just did an amazing job and uh, I was enjoying every minute of it because I had no reservations about drawing Thor being a, being a Kirby fan, being a Basema fan, you know, Thor was my jam. I, I had no problem with that at all. Um, but I was amazed and thrilled by the kind of stuff that Tom was coming up with, the scope of the stuff he was coming up with, and the difference for me in the storytelling between Spider-Man and Thor. I mean, you don't you don't tell a Thor story the same way you tell a Spider-Man story. It, no. I had to adapt. I had to find my footing, you know, in that, those first couple of years. And uh, it was all worth doing. It was all a lot of fun. I mean, you keep it fun for yourself and as i said early in the interview i mean i can't help but think that that comes through on the page and and you know i i think it it's it's kind of weird to say but i think it builds a certain amount of trust between the reader and the creatives you know they 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 get a sense that (coughs) you love these characters too Mm -hmm. no i mean even we didn't get a lot of hate mail when Eric became Thor, we, we had people that didn't like the idea, you know, like when we did the cover of no more Mr. Nice God, you know, that kind of thing. And we were kind of leaning into what was going on in image at the time, but that, that wasn't the, the, that wasn't the core of what the story was. We were just doing that for a cover. And we had some people that were criticizing, you know, some of those choices, but the point was they, they actually liked Eric by the time we did it. So they were on, they were on board. They they knew that this was a story we were telling and they were curious to see where it was going to go. You know? Right. Um, so I think at that point we had built, you know, a relationship, a trust relationship with our readership and they were willing to, to give us the room to tell the story knowing that, you know, obviously these guys love Thor. They've been on the book for five years already. You know, they're, they're not going to, 
steer it into a ditch deliberately or something, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, so I I ultimately, you know, there, there are these, the silliness of being called a legend. And I actually was asked in one interview, how do you become a legend? (laughs) And by my experience, Eric, the way you become a legend is you show up, (laughs) you show up for work. Right. And if you show up regularly, you know, I've been blessed to have regular runs on major titles. And, you know, if you show up and you do that kind of work, a magical thing happens. You become part of people's individual happy memories. Yes. You know, their, their personal nostalgia. Yes. I mean, you know, I found, I, I found out very quickly when I came onto Facebook that nobody, and I don't mean this in a self-effacing way or anything, nobody cares about Ron Friends. They care about Ron Friends as the illustrator of any given issue of Thor or Spider-Man or Superman or Star Wars or whatever that they remember clearly where they bought it, what living room they were sitting in when they read it, how it affected them, uh, whether it was their first comic or their 50th comic or whatever. That's what they remember. And, and that's a blessing. I mean, mm-hmm. that, to be part of people's happy memories, that's, that's incredible. That's an incredible blessing. And I get people all the time that, you know, uh, well, friend requests me and I finally, I finally get around to accepting their friend request and they'll send me a private message and, and they'll tell me that story. You know, they'll tell me that story about that issue of Star Wars that meant the world to them or that issue of uh, Thor or Spider-Man or whatever. You know, I mean, it, it's at the point now where, you know, I'm 61. I was on Spider-Man in the 80s. Uh, you know, I went 84, 85, 86, something like that. And a lot of people are saying, you know, my first Spider-Man comic was, you're my Spider-Man guy because... You were the artist on Spider-Man when I started reading comics. I, we had an assistant editor at one point whose first issue of Spider-Man was one of ours. You know, he was our assistant editor on Thor, and one of his his first comic book was one of our Spider-Mans. And, uh, you know, while that makes it hard to deny I'm getting a little long in the tooth, I mean, I, it, it's flattering, and it's, it's I'm, you know... It's it's neat. I, it's really really special. But that's yeah. really I, I I imagine for most uh, people in your line of work, you you guys come from a generation, and I think that's why guys my age, mid thirties to almost forty, those you know, like you described before, we have such a sweet spot for those books because, um, in a lot of ways, they raised us, and they they are those happy memories, and and when now you can go on Facebook and friend request someone such as yourself or Tom or, you know, uh, J.M. DeMatteis or, or Howard Mackey who wor- worked on these spider and you guys respond back to us and we're able to ask you these questions that we've always had in, in our imagination. It means so much because like why else you guys were part of that generation who loved comics too. You weren't making comics and like putting your head down, you know, the way Stan sometimes says that he was embarrassed to say he was a comic book writer because you guys were proud to be doing this because you knew how much it meant and how excited people reading them would be because you guys experienced that yourself. So it's, it's, I don't know if there's a bigger compliment at the end of, at the end of it all. No, and, and I, it's always, it always behooves us to, remember when we were 
on the other side of it. You know, I mean, believe me, Eric, anytime I think of the fact that I'm friends with Sal Buscema, mm. <laughs> it, it, it fries my circuits. <laughs> I mean, the idea that I could, I could call up Sal Buscema and go, Sal, how are you, sir? You know, and we can talk for an hour. Is, is crazy to me. It still is crazy to me after all these years, you know, mm-hmm. there's a, there's a thing in my brain sometimes that I think switches because I'll pull out those old, like early Avengers that I first discovered Sal on and everything. And, and, and I'm going, Oh God, that's right. That's the same guy, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And, and it's, it almost is like a survival instinct where you're, and the fact that I worked with and uh, that John Romita knew who I was, you know, that kind of knows who I am is crazy. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I, and you, you have to respect that with other people. I mean, they, you know, the fans are the fans and that's why we do the stuff. And that's why anybody hires us and, and everything else. So you never want to lose track of the fact that you were one once and, you know, it, treat them accordingly uh, with, with respect and with affection and, um, you know, and, and, uh, with a certain amount of, of, no, I get it. I get it. Calm down. <laughs> Everything, everything's fine. Cause we're just regular peoples, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it, it, I can't, I, I mean, I'm the luckiest guy on the planet. I mean, I, I can't deny that, you know, how many people choose a career path at like six or seven years old as a dream of, I want to grow up, work for Marvel comics and draw the amazing Spider-Man someday. And I was doing it at 25. I mean, that that's a gift, man. It doesn't get any better than that. I mean, the fact that I had built a career beyond that as well is gravy. (laughs) You know, the fact that I'm still making a living drawing these characters and being associated with these characters. You know, you were talking about working with Roger Stern. Uh, the next project we got out coming out this summer from sitcomics and binge books is a book called the heroes union. Mm-hmm. And the characters are created by a gentleman named Darren Henry from California. And it's written by, uh, uh, Roger Stern and it's uh, penciled by me and it's inked by Sal Basema and a young guy named Chris Nye. And it, it's 60 some pages of superhero action. And I, you know, I'm still getting to do this. I'm still getting to tell these stories and, and hopefully entertain as many fans as possible. You know, these books will be released through diamond come this summer. And I, I'm still happy to be a part of it. You know, uh, I love telling the stories as much as I enjoy doing commissions, private commissions for people and, and communicating sometimes one-on-one with people through my rep and, and creating individual pieces for people. I miss the storytelling aspect. I mean, that's one of the things that I've always loved about it. And uh, so I, you know, I still sometimes hanker to tell my own stories and everything. And uh, you know, we'll see if other opportunities arise either with sitcomics or beyond sitcomics. I don't know, but right now I'm very happy working with Darren and sitcomics. So, uh, you know, check your, Check your uh, summer catalogs from Diamond and order uh, order a Heroes Union number one because it's going to be a party, <laughs> and uh, you're going to be sorry if you missed it. Hey, Roger Roger Stern and Ron Friends on a book. Um, that's like for- and the characters are a lot of fun. It's all it's a lot of all ages fun. Darren is a child of the '70s. That's very much what he's interested in doing. Um, uh, you know, all ages superhero action and. Uh, and some really, really clever 
modern characters that have a terrific, a terrific modern voice. And, uh, um, I know I, I've helped design most of them and, uh, I mean, Darren's got a fresh eye for a lot of this stuff. And, you know, uh, if you're a fan of my work at all, please check it out and, and give me feedback on Facebook and everything. Cause we want to engage as many people as possible and, uh, keep the conversation going, you know, keep this whole superhero form alive and thriving. I mean, Kevin Feige can't do all of it. You know? <laughs> the poor guy needs to sleep sometimes. <laughs> that's, that's true. I don't know how he does it. And when I see the way that they made the, all of these stories blend in with each other, the way uh, they did in the sixties, it's, yeah. it's quite the magic trick that they've pulled off. It really is. It, it really is. is. And I'll tell you what, one of the magic parts of it is, is keeping your eye on the prize. You know, don't, don't worry about the universe. Keep your eye on the project you're working on at the moment. Make that as 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 strong as possible, and and as uh, complete as possible. Then worry about building organically from that. And I think that's what they've done so so right. Is I think, they? I think you're right. They, they're not looking at this. They're not looking at the forest. They're looking at each individual tree as they're planting it and, and growing it as organically as possible. And I think that's why it's been working so far. I really do. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm really excited to, uh, for the summer when the book is, uh, in the catalogs and we can pick it out, pick it up and hopefully, uh, we'll be able to have you on the show to talk about it when it's released. Oh, that'd be my pleasure, man. That'd be great. Yeah. In fact, you know, we'll do one of those Adam Chapman things. We'll go over it. Page by page. <laughs> Adam, I love you, man. That was, that was a lot of fun. I, I love the fact that he's so into Amex. Uh, uh, he, but, uh, he loves, he loves your work. Uh, probably. I think the only other guy would be Dan Gavazdin who, who matches that. And I'm, I'm a big fan myself. I like you see in the background, I've got your, your Thors and the epics and I'm so happy that they're, uh, able to be collected now because there's you know there's a lot there's a lot of chunks of of comics from the 90s that sometimes you know for a while it was cool to hate on 90s comics but when you separate the the, the time from people who who made it a trend to kind of crap on 90s comics there's so much good stuff like you you oh, and yeah. even like new warriors which came out through the 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 thor uh they were featured in thor first you guys yeah, put them together. Book. I mean, oh, Fabian and uh, Mark Bagley just did phenomenal work on yeah, that. Yeah, there's so much yeah. good stuff. So it's so nice to see that those things are collected. Because like you said before, the jumping on points with current stuff, to some extent, I don't know, if if you want to read good good comics, everything's being collected now. And I think the epic collections and the omnibus and, and these different formats are a new way for people who um, – want to get into or have been into to rediscover these characters without having to be forced what's happening now. There's so much stuff we can read, which is really, really nice. Um, before you leave, I have two rapid fire questions for you. I'm going to make it, they're very difficult. You're going to have to choose kind of between your children, but I want to see what, what you say. So if you had to pick between Thor and Spider-Man, who would you be, who would it be? As characters? Uh, yeah. It would Spider-Man. I'd probably go with Spider-Man. But any reason as much why? As, I love, as much as I love Thor and as much as I love Eric, uh, you know, Pete's, Pete's had the uh, years on me, you know. And then associated with those characters, you guys gave them children. So would you go with Thunderstrike or Spider-Girl? 
Well, we, we got to play with Spider-Girl a lot more. I know May Day a lot better than I got to know Kevin. Uh, although the MC2 Kevin is always going to be a large, he's going to have a large part of my heart. I mean, as much as I enjoyed 616 Kevin, mm-hmm. uh, MC2 Kevin was my guy. Um, <laughs> but I probably would have to give that to May Day, just, so- just because of time spent, you know. We had more time to develop her, and and, and she's a huge, there's a huge part of Pat Olive in her, and, and she's just a very well-rounded, well-developed character. You yeah. Know? And and I think the uh, the cult following that developed from that book for people who just loved it to keep it alive uh, really says a lot about how and they're all connected. quality people. I mean, they're all quality people. <laughs> the people I meet that are huge Spider Girl fans, <laughs> it just fills your heart because they're all such nice people. Uh, it's incredible. I mean, I haven't met one person <laughs> who liked Spider Girl for the wrong reasons. You know, I mean, they're just. They're just, they're amazing people, all of them, every single one of them. Yeah, so it's incredible. That's great. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. I hope uh, you come back on the show soon. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, and you're so gracious with the fans. We, we all appreciate it. Thank you so much. I, I thank you for saying that, uh, Eric, and, and thank you. And, yeah, let's not make it as long. Let's not make it another 200 episodes before we do this. You know I'm out here, and you know I'm willing. So uh, if there's any, you have a question or something, Let's, let's touch base and maybe we can take questions from the internet at some point or something. Who knows? That would be yeah. great. And for those who, who loved listening to this episode and want to hear more of Ron Friends get into the real nitty gritty, check out Comic Shenanigans because they've got – he Adam's got like probably the, the, the best footage of, of you breaking down the whole process of how the sausage is made. So check uh, that yeah. out. He, he's a sausage man. That's for sure. <laughs> All right. You take care of yourself, Eric. Thank you very much. Thank you. You have a good night. You too. Take care.